This week, the New York Public Library podcast welcomes Joyce Carol Oates, the author of innumerable novels, plays, and poems, including the novel Them, which won the National Book Award in 1970. The prolific and beloved writer joins us to talk about creativity, productivity, and the importance of living an inspired life. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Thank you so much for the gracious introduction. It's a great honor and a great pleasure to have been invited to give the Robert Silvers lecture this evening and in such a, a beautiful setting. Since 1992, I've been writing reviews for the Distinguished New York Review of Books in an association that has been challenging, exacting, and rewarding. My first editor at the New York Review, and to her untimely and lamented death in 2006, was the remarkable Barbara Epstein. Her first assignment for me was a half-dozen books on boxing, primarily on the great Muhammad Ali. The essay I wrote was so freighted with boxing lore, arcane quotes and references so specific in its concerns, I could not reasonably see how it could even be published in any general interest literary publication. Yet somehow it was in October 1992, and in this way began my literary friendship with Barbara Epstein. We shared what might be called a fierce attentiveness to the specific and habitude to work that may have seemed odd to others, but was perfectly natural to us. Once in those days when people called one another on the telephone instead of sending emails or texting, Barbara called me fairly late at night, it might have been 11 p.m., to go over a review I'd written. I said, isn't it late for you to be still at the office, Barbara? And Barbara said, isn't it late for you to be still at your desk? So we understood each other perfectly. Since 2006, the legendary Bob Silvers has been my editor. Bob is as exacting as Barbara and is inspiring and and nurturing. My several essay collections in Rough Country, Uncensored Views and Reviews, and Where I've Been and Where I Am Going have all been generated by New York Review assignments. Most on subjects I would not have thought of writing about otherwise. The books just arrive, and I have no choice. I have to write about them. Bob doesn't call beforehand. It's just the books arrive as, as wonderful surprises sometimes. <laughs> I take the books out, and I have no idea how I'm going to deal with them, but I, I have no choice. I, I sort of have to do it. That's meant to be a joke. <laughs> so I sort of open the books and see what my fate is for the next several weeks. The creative editor is one who, to paraphrase the Surrealist Manifesto, brings together two seemingly disparate objects, the reviewer and the book, to create something new, rich, and strange. It's no surprise that the New York Review is the most distinguished of contemporary literary journals and that Bob Silvers is the most respected and honored editor of our time. My uh, talk tonight is The Uninspired Life Worth Living, obviously a reflection of is the unexamined life worth living, thoughts on inspiration and obsession. 
I think I should begin by evoking Magritte's famous painting of 1928, The Treason of Images, with its simple literal depiction of a pipe, you know, and the provocative caption beneath, this is not a pipe. This is not a traditional lecture so much as a quest for a lecture in the singular, a quest constructed around a sequence of questions. Why do we write? What is the motive for metaphor? Quote, where do you get your ideas? Do we choose our subjects or do our subjects choose us? Do we choose our voices? Is inspiration a singular phenomenon or does it take taxonomical forms? Indeed, is the uninspired life worth living? So I located about nine types of inspiration, which I'll, some of which overlap, which I'll talk about tonight. And if I suddenly run out of time, I just skip to the end because I'm, I make a point at the end. Nobody will miss what's in the middle. And <laughs> I could always say the best parts had to be left out. And I'm really looking forward to having questions from the audience. It's always so lively and unexpected sometimes very unexpected, so the questions one gets. So, the, is the uninspired life worth living? Thoughts on inspiration and obsession. Why did I write? What sin to me unknown dipped me in ink, my parents or my own? Alexander Pope's great epistle to Dr. Abrathnot, 1734, asked this question both playfully and seriously. Why did the child pope take to verse at so young an age? Telling us, as many a poet might tell us, with the kind of modesty that enormous self-confidence can generate, quote, I lisped in numbers, but the numbers came. It's a very famous line. By which the poet means an intuitive, instinctive, inborn sense of scansion and rhyme for which some individuals have the equivalent of perfect pitch in music. You are born with it or you are not. For sure, virtuosity in verse, Pope is one of the great masters of the language. His brilliantly orchestrated couplets lend themselves ideally to the expression of wit, uh, usually caustic in the service of the poet's satiric mission. The predilection to, quote, lisp in numbers suggests a kind of entrapment, though Pope doesn't suggest this. The perfectly executed couplet with its locked together rhymes is a tick-like mannerism, not unlike punning, to which some individuals succumb involuntarily. I'll say parenthetically that path, there is such a thing as pathological punning <laughs> and rhyming. It's a symptom, evidently, of frontal lobe syndrome, a neurological deficit caused by injury or illness. I say parenthetically because I'm married to a neuroscientist and I know things that I wouldn't have known otherwise that are something they verge upon the morbid. <laughs> Almost any kind of talent in, in, for literature could be traced back to some strange neurological deficit, as they call it. So punning and rhyming, sort of a compulsive uh, behavior, which not, not many people do, but some do, it's, it's fascinating because even as others react with pained amusement or if not with revulsion and alarm, Pope's predilection for, quote, lisping in numbers seems to us closely bound up with his era and his talent, a talent of the era, that is the 18th century, that revered the tight-knit grimace of satire and the very sort of expository and didactic poetry 
from which a half, half a century later, Wordsworth and Coleridge would seek to free the poet. Pope never suggests, however, that the content of poetry is in any way inherited, like the genetic propensity for scansion and rhyme. He would not have concurred, and who among the poets among most of us would so concur, with Plato's churlish view of poetry as inspired not from within the individual's imagination, but from an essentially supernatural, daemonic source. To Plato, poetry had to be under the authority of the state, in the service of the, quote, mythological generic good. That it might be imitative of any specific object was to its discredit. The idea of imitation was a negative thing. No ideas but in things, the rallying cry of William Carlos Williams in the 20th century would have been anathema to the essentialist Plato, like emotion itself or, worse yet, passion, the passions. He was with negative things. Thus, all imitative poetry, especially the tragic poetry of Homer, should be banished from the Republic as it is, quote, deceptive, magical, and insincere. With the plodding quasi-logic of a right-wing politician, Plato Socrates dares to say, this is from Eon, in fact, all the good poets who make epic poems like Homer use no art at all, but they are inspired and possessed when they utter all those beautiful poems, and so are the good lyric poets. They are not in their right mind when they make their beautiful songs. As soon as they mount on their harmony and rhythm, they become frantic and possessed. For the poet is an airy thing, a winged and a holy thing. He cannot make poetry until he becomes inspired and goes out of his senses, and no mind is left in him. Not by art, then, they make their poetry, but by divine dispensation. Therefore, the only poetry that each can make is what the muse has pushed him to make. These beautiful poems are not human, not made by man, but divine and made by God, and the poets are nothing but the God's interpreters. The poets whom Plato disdained and feared were analogous to our rock star performers. You might not know that, but they they recited their poems before large and enthusiastic audiences. We can assume it wasn't the fact that these poets were popular, as Homer was popular, to which Plato mostly objected, but the fact that his particularly heavily theologized philosophy didn't form the content of their utterances. The poet's right mind should be under the authority of the state. Indeed, each citizen's right mind should be a part of the hive mind of the republic. That the free-thinking, rebellious, and unpredictable poet type must be banished from the claustrophobic republic is self-evident. In one of the great ironies of history, it was to be Plato's Socrates who was banished from the state. So that's one theory of poetry. And then in contrast to that, uh, the worksheets of poets as diverse as Dylan Thomas, William Butler Yeats, Elizabeth Bishop, Philip Larkin, and many others suggest how deliberate is the poet's art and how far from being inspired by a mere daemon. Though it's often the poet's wish to appear spontaneous and unstudied, see William Butler Yeats's poem, Adam's Curse. 
We sat together at one summer's end, that beautiful, mild woman, your close friend, and you and I, and talked of poetry. I said, A line will take us hours, maybe, yet if it does not seem a moment's thought, our stitching and unstitching has been naught. Better go down upon your marrow bones and scrub a kitchen pavement, or break stones like an old pauper in all kinds of weather, for to articulate sweet sounds together is to work harder than all these, and yet be thought an idler by the noisy set of bankers, schoolmasters, and clergymen the martyrs call the world. And thereupon that beautiful, mild woman for whose sake this many a one shall find out all heartache, and finding that her voice is sweet and low, replied, To be born woman is to know, although they do not talk of it at school, that we must labor to be beautiful. I said, It's certain there is no fine thing since Adam's fall, but needs much laboring. Very different from the Beat's notorious admonition, first thought, best thought. To, to appear spontaneous and unresolved, even as one is highly calculated and conscious, that's the ideal. As Virginia Woolf remarked in her diary in an aside that seems almost to prefigure her suicide in 1941 at the age of 59. This is from the writer's diary, April 8, 1925. I do not any longer feel inclined to doff the cap to death. I'd like to go out of the room talking with an unfinished casual sentence on my lips. No leave-takings, no submission, but someone stepping out into darkness. Two, inspiration is an elusive term. We all want to be inspired if the consequence is something original and worthwhile. We would even consent to be haunted and obsessed if the consequences were significant. For all writers dread what Emily Dickinson calls zero at the bone, the dead zone from which inspiration has fled. What does it mean to be captivated by an image, a phrase, a mood, an emotion? Quote, a picture held us captive, and we could not get outside it, for it lay in our language, and language seemed to repeat it to us inexorably. This is from Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations. Most serious and productive artists are haunted by their material. This is the galvanizing force of their creativity, their motivation. It is not and cannot be a fully conscious or volitional haunting. It is something that seems to happen to us as if from without. No matter what craft is brought to bear upon it, what myriad worksheets and note cards... Here is Emily Dickinson's Cree de Cour. To whom the midnight mornings stand for nights, what must the midnights be? Most of the Dickinson poems we revere and have lodged deeply into us are beautifully articulated, delicately calibrated cries from the heart, formulations of unspeakable things at the point of which poetic inspiration has become terror-filled. Quote, the first day's night had come, and grateful that a thing so terrible had been endured, I told my soul to sing. She said her strings were snapped, her bow to atoms blown, and so to mend her gave me work until another morn. And then 
a day as huge as yesterday's in pairs, unrolled its horror in my face until it blocked my eyes. My brain begun to laugh, I mumbled like a fool, and though tis years ago that day, my brain keeps giggling still. And something's odd within that person that I was and this one do not feel the same. Could it be madness, this? This is the very voice of inwardness, compulsiveness, the soul at the white heat, of which Dickinson speaks in the remarkable poem that seems almost to deconstruct the platonic charge of God inspiration. Quote, Dare you see a soul at the white heat? Then crouch within the door. Red is the fire's common tint, but when the vivid ore... Most of the Dickinson... It quivers, excuse me. It quivers from the forge without a color but the light of unignited blaze. There is another Dickinson whose inspiration is clearly more benign, drawn from the small pleasures and vexations of daily life, a shared in domestic life in her father's house in Amherst, Massachusetts. Quote, a rat surrendered here, a brief career of cheer and fraud and fear. Ignominies do, let all addicted to beware. The most obliging trap, its tendency to snap, cannot resist. Temptation is the friend, repugnantly resigned at last. A surely the most brilliantly crafted poem ever written on the subject of a rat found dead in a trap. And behind the house, quote, a narrow fellow in the grass occasionally rides. You may have met him, did you not his notice sudden is. The grass divides us with a comb, a spotted shaft is seen, and then it closes at your feet and opens further on. Several of nature's people I know and they know me. I feel for them a transport of credulity, but never met this fellow attended or alone without a tighter breathing and zero at the bone. In the tersely titled poem Pig by our contemporary Henri Cole, the trapped, doomed animal that is the poem's subject fuses with the poet-observer in the way of a vivid and revealing dream. Pig. Poor, patient pig, trying to keep his balance, that's all, upright on a flatbed ahead of me, somewhere between Pennsylvania and Ohio, enjoying the wind, maybe, against the tufts of hair on the tops of his ears like a stoic at the foot of the gallows, or with my eyes heavy and glazed from caffeine and driving, like a soul disembarking, its flesh probably bacon now, tipping into split pea soup, or more painful to me, like a man in his middle years struggling to remain vital and honest while we're all just floating around accidental-like on a breeze. What funny thoughts slide into the head, alone on the interstate with no place to be. Uh, parenthetically, I should re remark that when I taught several writing workshops at San Quentin in 2011, on my first meeting with the inmate writers, I read this poem of Henri Coles about the, the pig who had gotten out of his, his um, he was trapped. He got out of his pen 
and was on the flatbed and was sort of out there enjoying the breeze. In fact, I had to read this poem twice. The inmate students were riveted and moved by this poem in which they saw themselves all too clearly, and it was very influential for them. In these striking poems by Dickinson and Cole, the poet appropriates a natural sighting of one of nature's people. These are not found poems except in their suggestion that the poet's sighting has an element of accident, one within the range of all of us, the rat in the trap, the snake in the grass, the pig on the flatbed being born along a highway to slaughter. The poet is a seer, and the poem is the act of appropriation. We might wonder, would the poem have been written without the sighting? Would another poem have been written in its place at just that hour? Is it likely that the poet's vision is inchoate inside the imagination and is tapped by a sighting in the world that triggers an emotional rapport out of which the poem is crafted? If we consider in such cases that the poem has what the poet has made out of the sighted object that is but is not contained within the subject, we catch a glimpse of the imagination akin to a flammable substance into which a lighted match is dropped. Dickinson's poems and her letters as well, which seem so airy and fluent, give the impression of being dashed off. In fact, Dickinson's composed very carefully, sometimes keeping her characteristically enigmatic lines and images for years before using them in a poem or in a letter. It's a fact that the human brain processes only a small selection of what the eye sees. So, too, the poet is one who sees a significant image to be put to a powerful use in a structure or words while discarding all else. Three. This is from someone's journal. This is to be fairly short, to have father's character done complete in it, and mother's, and St. Ives, and childhood, and all the usual things I try to put in, life, death, and so forth. But the central figure is father's character sitting in a boat, reciting, we perished, each alone, while he crushes a dying mackerel. This is Virginia Woolf musing in her diary for May 14, 1925, on To the Lighthouse, which she will say, about which she will say months later, she is being, quote, blown like an old flag by my novel. I live entirely in it and have come to the service rather obscurely and am often unable to think. By one of these wonderful coincidences, I just saw some note, some worksheets of To the Lighthouse in the Bird Collection about half an hour ago, and, and she talks about having this strange fluency, which is not typical of her writing. A different sort of inspiration is the sheerly autobiographical, the work created out of intimacy with one's own life and experience. Yet here also, the appropriating strategy is light, as highly selective as in memoir, the writer must dismiss all but a small fraction of the overwhelming bounty of available material. What is required beyond memory is a perspective on one's own past that is both a child's and an adult's, constituting an entirely new perspective. So the writer of autobiographical fiction is a time traveler in his or her life, and the writing is often, as Virginia Woolf noted, quote, fertile and fluent. I am now writing as fast and freely as I have written in the whole of my life, more so, 20 times more so, than any novel yet. 
I think that this is proof that I am a, was on the right path and what hangs in my soul is to be reached there. The truth is, one can't write directly about the soul. Looked at, it vanishes, but look elsewhere and the soul slips in. It's so beautiful. That's from a writer's diary, February 6, 1926. John Updike's first novel, The Poor House Fair, in 1959, published when the author was 26, is a purposefully modest work composed in a minor key. Unlike Norman Mailer's first novel, The Naked and the Dead, 1948, also published when the author was 26. Where Mailer trod onto the literary scene like an invading army with an ambitious military plan, Updike seems almost to have wished to enter by a rear door claiming a very small turf in rural eastern Pennsylvania and concentrating upon the near at hand with the meticulous eye of a poet. The Poor House Fair is in its way a bold avoidance of the quasi-autobiographical novel so common to young writers, the novel in which the author's coming of age is the primary subject. Perversely, given the age of the author, The Poor House Fair is about the elderly, set in a future only 20 years distant and lacking the dramatic features of the typical future dystopian work. Its concerns are intrapersonal and theological. By 1959, Updike had already published many of the short stories that would be gathered in the Allinger stories one day, which constitutes his own coming-of-age novel, freeing him to imagine an entirely other original debut work. The Poor House Fair, as Updike was to explain in an introduction to the 1977 edition, was suggested by a visit in 1957 to his hometown of Shillington, which included a visit to the ruins of a poorhouse near his home. The young author then decided to write a novel in celebration of the fairs held at the poorhouse during his, his childhood with the intention of paying tribute to his recently deceased grandfather. In this way, the Poor House Fair both is not, but is, an autobiographical work as its theological concerns described elsewhere in Updike's work were those of the young writer at the time. Appropriately, as many of you probably know, Updike wrote another future-set novel near the end of his life, toward the end of time, 1997, in which the elderly protagonist and his wife appear to be thinly, even ironically disguised portraits or caricatures of Updike and his wife in a vaguely post-apocalyptic world bearing a close resemblance to the Updike's suburban home in Beverly Farms, Massachusetts. Is it coincidental that Updike's first novel and his near-to-last so mirror each other? Both have theological concern and both are executed with a beautifully wrought precise prose for which Updike is acclaimed. But no one could mistake toward the end of time with its bitter, self-chiding humor and tragically diminished perspectives were the work of fiction by a reverend and hopeful young writer. Four, love at first sight. Is literary inspiration, as in life, such a blow to one's self-sufficiency and self-composure can have profound, ambiguous consequences. For here's another set of inspiration which we might call the encounter with the other. He had been a highly successful young writer with his first two novels quickly written in his early 20s following his seafaring adventures in the South Seas. Taipei, 
a peep at Polynesian life, 1846, and Omu, a narrative adventures in the South Seas, 1847. Now he was working energetically on a third seafaring novel narrated in a similar storytelling voice, this time set on a New England whaling ship called the Pequod. Herman Melville, as a young man, had sailed with a New Bedford whaler into the South Pacific where, after 18 months, he jumped ship in a South Seas port. Going to sea for Melville was, quote, the beginning of my life. While Melville was working industriously on this new novel, when a book of short stories came in the house, Nathaniel Hawthorne's Mosses from an Old Manse, which had been published a few years before, in 1846. Melville, at 31, younger than Hawthorne by 15 years, read this collection of anecdotal and allegorical tales with mounting astonishment. There was the affable sunny Hawthorne, as he seems to be generally known, but there was the other darker and deeper Hawthorne. Quote, It is that blackness in Hawthorne that so fixes and fascinates me, as Melville would say. Soon Melville was moved to write the first thoughtful appreciation of Hawthorne, Hawthorne and his Mosses, 1850, in which Melville speculates, quote, that this great power of blackness in Hawthorne derives its force from its appeal to that Calvinistic sense of innate depravity and original sin, from whose visitations no deeply thinking mind is always and wholly free. Hawthorne's influence upon Melville was immediate and profound. What would have been another seafaring adventure tale, very likely another bestseller, was transformed by the enchanted Melville into the intricately plotted, highly symbolic and poetic Moby Dick, the greatest of 19th century American novels, as it is one of the strangest of all American novels. Hawthorne seems to have entered Melville's life at about chapter 23 of this new novel, transforming its tone and ambition that is so bizarre and so wonderful, if you're a writer yourself, to sort of fantasize that something's going to come in and completely shake you up right in the middle of your novel and, and make it much better. Again, one is moved to think of a flammable material into which a struck match has been cast with extraordinary incendiary results. For Melville was consumed by Hawthorne's prose style as well as Hawthorne's tragic vision, which he was to align with the Shakespeare of the great tragedies and their great soliloquies. The result is a novel that is unwieldy, extravagant, and unique, unsurprisingly dedicated to Hawthorne, quote, in token of my admiration for his genius. Moby Dick was published in 1851, which is the year of Hawthorne's The House of the Seven Gables, but only one year after Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. For Melville, this homage to the older Hawthorne seems to have constituted the great passion of his life. From a letter to Hawthorne in 1851, I felt pantheist then, your heart beat in my ribs and mine in yours, and both in God's. A sense of unspeakable security is in me then this moment, on account of your having understood the book. Whence come you, Hawthorne? By what right do you drink from the flagon of life? And when I put it to my lips low, they are yours and not mine. 
I feel that the Godhead is broken up like the bread at the supper, and we are the pieces. Hence this infinite fraternity of feeling. The very fingers that now guide this pen are not precisely the same that just took it up and put it on the paper. Lord, when will we be done changing? It's a long stage and no end in sight and a night coming and the body cold. But with you as a passenger, I am content and can be happy. I shall leave the world, I feel, with more satisfaction for having come to know you. Knowing you persuades me more than the Bible of our immortality. It's such a beautiful letter. It's a bitter irony and must have been a considerable shock to the ecstatic young Melville that Moby Dick, in which he had poured his soul, was to most readers of the era, including even educated reviewers, unreadable. A great classic we are accustomed to consider it today, and yet a crushing failure to the young author who had realized only $556 from royalties. Reviews were generally negative, some of them savagely negative, even in the UK, where Melville's early South Seas adventure romances were overnight bestsellers. It was such bad luck that Melville's British publisher brought out the novel before his American publisher and had had not had time to incorporate Melville's new title, Moby Dick, which was to have replaced The Whale. Worse luck that the British publisher failed to include the last page of the novel. which includes the epilogue, which is rather important to the novel. <laughs> In fact, some of the reviewers made fun of the fact, they said, well, how could, how could this person be telling the story when the, the peacock went down and everyone drowned? You know, sort of ridiculing the writer. And, some of the front, and also some of the front matter of the manuscript was, I don't know why, was moved to the back of the book and became a, a very unwieldy appendix. Who knows what happens? It was the case at this time that British publishers could remove from the manuscript anything politically questionable or, quote, obscene, not only without conferring with the author, but without informing him. So things have improved a little since then. On the whole, American reviewers followed British reviewers, crushing opinions of the novel. Not one American reviewer took time to note that the American edition differed significantly from the British. So probably they didn't read it. Like merely human-sized harpooners surrounding a mighty leviathan, such crude reviewers had the power to kill sales of Melville's books and destroy the energies and hope of Melville's youth. He continued to write after Moby Dick, but never regained his own optimism. Even his attempt to cultivate a new career lecturing to lyceums soon ended when he couldn't resist mocking his audience the quasi-intellectualism and pretension of the Lyceum Circuit. I have to really admire him for that. Having failed completely to writing a great novel, he then couldn't help but mock his audiences, so he soon had no invitations. <laughs> he had integrity, I guess. Dollars damn me, Melville said. He had not enough of them. By the time Melville died in 1891, even his early bestsellers were out of print and his name was forgotten. The account that Melville's name was printed in the New York Times obituary as Henry Melville is evidently not true, but evidently a Hiram Melville seems to have crept into print a few days later. So I don't know where Hiram Melville came from. 
Both his sons had predeceased him, which would have been a terrible tragedy. The younger, Malcolm, by his own hand. His marriage seemed to have been difficult. His wife's genteel parents kept urging her to leave him on the grounds that he was a heavy drinker and insane. It is significant that Melville's final work of fiction, the posthumously published novella Billy Budd, is a starkly imagined allegory of innocence, evil, and tragic atonement. So Hawthornian in its prose and vision, it's as if Melville's beloved collaborator had assisted him one final time. Inspiration in this instant was ravishing, irresistible, a double-edged sword. In a short run, it led to what seems unmistakably like failure in the author's tragic experience, but in the longer run, great and abiding posthumous success. Five. She was stalled in a new ambitious novel, her seventh, that was to be a, quote, study of provincial English life. Her most recent novel, Felix Holt, with a similar ambition, had been published two years before and had had disappointing sales. She knew the setting well, in fact intimately, the Midlands of England in the 1830s. But after the desultory beginning in 1869, Middlemarch was set aside for a year following domestic distractions. Uncharacteristically, the highly professional 50-year-old George Eliot hadn't been writing on the new novel with much enthusiasm or inspiration. But then, in May 1870, Eliot and her companion George Henry Lewes visited Oxford where they had lunch with the rector of Lincoln College and his parenthesis, conspicuously younger wife, neither of whom they knew well. The Pattisons were perceived as an oddly matched husband and wife, not only because Francis Patterson was 27 years younger than Mark Patterson, but because while Francis was beautiful, lively, and charming, Mark was, quote, a wizened little man, without evidently ch- evident charm, quote, prone to depression. A highly private, reclusive scholar of classics and religion. Clearly, this marriage among unequals made a powerful impression on George Eliot, who there, shortly thereafter began Middlemarch anew, this time opening with a vivid portrait of Miss Dorothea Brooke, a beautiful, intelligent, and idealistic young woman who makes the grievous error of marrying a much older clergyman scholar, the pedantic, self pitying Edward Casaubon. Just as the rector's young wife, Frances, had hoped to assist him in his scholarly work, so too Eliot's Miss Brooke hopes to assist her husband in his quixotic effort to write, quote, the key to all mythologies. Eventually, Frances Patterson would leave her dull, embittered husband to live in close proximity to a male friend in Europe. After years of stoic resignation as Mrs. Edward Casaubon, Dorothea becomes a widow and remarries, this time a far more suitable man. As Casaubon never completes the key to our mythologies, so Mark Patterson never completed his work of scholarly historical ambition. Deciding to begin Middlemarch not as he'd originally planned with the young physician Lydgate and the Vinci family into which he marries, but rather with Dorothea, was indeed inspired. For with this stroke, one of the great themes of Middlemarch is forged, the devastation of youthful female idealism under the heavy hand of patriarchal convention. Without the impetuous but always sympathetic Dorothea, 
who, like her American counterpart Isabel Archer of Henry James's The Portrait of a Lady, makes a very bad mistaken marriage for which he pays dearly, it's difficult to imagine what Eliot would have made of a more conventional characters of Middlemarch. But it's not surprising that George Eliot would never admit, or rather she would always deny, having modeled her fictional married couple on the rector of Lincoln College and his young wife. Writers would far rather have us believe that they've imagined or invented rather than taken from life. In Eliot's case in particular, with her heightened sense of moral responsibility, she would have felt vulnerable to charges of having exploited the Pattersons, who were, to a degree, her and Lou's friends. Try to be one of those on whom nothing is lost. This famous admonition of Henry James suggests the nature of James's own deeply curious, ceaselessly alert and speculative personality. His inspirations were myriad and often sprang from social situations, typically for one who dined out virtually every night of his adult life. The most frequently recorded of these is James's inspiration for The Turn of the Screw, which he records in his notebook for January 1895. Note here the ghost story told me at Addington by the Archbishop of Canterbury, the story of the young children left to the care of servants at an old country house through the death, presumably, of parents. The servants, wicked and depraved, corrupt and depraved the children. The servants die. The story is vague about the way of it. And their apparitions, figures return to haunt the house and children, to whom they seem to beckon. It is all obscure and imperfect, the picture, the story, but there is a suggestion of a strangely gruesome effect in it. The story to be told by an outside spectator, observer. The, quote, strangely gruesome effect that most intrigued James was the presence of not one but two ghosts appearing to not one but two innocent children, thus the turn of the screw. It can have been accidental that the archbishop's tale gripped James when, by his account in his early 50s, he was severely depressed following the public failure of his play Guy Domville in 1895, for which James had had great hopes. Is it a surprise to learn that Henry James, the very avatar of novelistic integrity, the darling of the new critics, in fact had wanted badly to become a popular playwright and dared to fantasize success in the West End? Imagine poor James's grief when at the opening of the play, that is, after the play, the end at the, at the curtain on the opening night, a section of the audience cruelly jeered him as he stood on stage. I think they called author, author, so that he came out, and then they jeered him and laughed at him. In this state of mind, the emotionally fragile James was particularly susceptible to the eerie hauntedness of the archbishop's story. He let it gestate for more than two years, then began to write what would be the turn of the screw, in as an entertainingly dramatic and suspenseful way as he knew how, to acquire, as he hoped, a new audience in the United States, where sales of his books had been languishing. Like so much that seems to spring at us from an accidental encounter, the turn of the screw had a powerful, if perhaps unconscious, significance. And to the author who claimed in a, friend, in a letter to a friend that when he was correcting proofs of the story, he was, quote, so frightened, I was afraid to go upstairs to bed. 
What would have been a disadvantage for a certain sort of writer for whom the autobiographical is primary was for James an enormous advantage. Out of the emotional isolation of his bachelor life, imagined so beautifully by Colm Teuben in his novel The Master, as a life of joyous, joyless restraint and denial, James was free to imagine the intense, intimate lives of others. The fascination of the governess of the turn of the screw for sinister, sexual Peter Quint, for instance, is given a particular charge by James's particular imagination. Homoerotic energies so powerfully repressed, they emerge, they erupt as agents of unspeakable evil. In this elegantly constructed Gothic tale, much is ambiguous, but the atmosphere of yearning, of desperate, humiliating yearning, is unmistakable. We feel that the emotionally starved young governess is a form of the author himself, helpless in her infatuation with the ghosts of her own imagination, and forced by this imagination to enter the tragic adult world of loss. Six. Where do you get your ideas? The question is frequently asked and rarely answered with any degree of conviction or sincerity, and rarely is the answer a dream. Written when Catherine Mansu was 30, her short elliptical story, Sun and Moon, seems to have sprung virtually complete out of a dream. Lyric and fluid like ice melting, a shimmering impressionistic work of fiction, Sun and Moon suggests the haunting evanescence of a dream. In her journal for February 10, 1918, Mansfield wrote, I dreamed a short story last night, even down to its name, which was Sun and Moon. It was very light. I dreamed it all about children. I got up at 6.30 and wrote a note or two because I knew it would fade. I didn't dream that I'd read it. No, I was in it, part of it, and it played around invisible me. But the hero is not more than five. In my dream, I saw a supper table with the eyes of five. It was awfully queer, especially a plate of half-melted ice cream. Mansfield's story, for all its delicate filigree, is a chilly prophecy of the destruction of childhood innocence. The plate of half-melted ice cream is a little ice cream house that is melted away among the ruins of an adult's coarse party from which children are excluded. That is such a beautiful story. I recommend you all to read that if you don't know it. And that it sprang almost complete from a dream, I just think is really amazing. This actually is so rare. It's, it's virtually never happens that one has a dream and, and transcribes it and so, so beautifully. But my subject in this section is dreams. The challenge was to write a ghost story. So Lord Byron had suggested to his friends with whom he was traveling in Italy at the summer of 1816. And so Mary Wollenstonecraft, Godwin Shelley, 18 at the time, recounts a nightmare she had that very night. I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then on the working of some powerful engine show signs of life. His success would terrify the artist. He would rush away hoping this thing would subside into dead matter. He sleeps, but he is awakened. He opens his eyes. Behold, the horrid thing stands at his bedside, opening his curtains. 
Here is a dream vision of singular vividness and strangeness. It would seem almost by the young writer's account that the allegorical horror story, moral parable, had not been imagined into being by the author herself. Rather, Mary Shelley is the passive observer. The vision seems to come from a source, not herself. Yet we are led to think, knowing something of the biographical context of the creation of Frankenstein, it can hardly have been an accident that a tale of a monstrous birth was written by a very young woman who'd had two babies with her mercurial and unpredictable poet lover, Percy Shelley, one of whom had died, and she was at this time very much pregnant again, and they were not yet married. Following the dream, Mary Shelley spoke of being possessed by her subject. At first she thought it w- her lurid Gothic tale would be a, just a short story, but the manuscript evolved with some help, collaboration from Shelley. The work became a curious, heavily Miltonic, allegorical romance. Ultimately, it was rejected by both Shelley's and Byron's publishers, who knew that the author was a young woman. But it was finally published anonymously in 1818, when the author was 21. Since then, Frankenstein has never been out of print, and is surely the most extraordinary novel ever written by an 18-year-old girl enthralled to a brilliant but doomed romantic poet. Today, Frankenstein isn't identified as the doctor creator of the monster, but the monster himself. And Mary Shelley's brilliantly deformed creation has been detached from the author, an iconic figure seemingly self-generated, one of the great potent symbols of humankind's predilection for self-destruction as significant in our time as in 1818. Seven, social injustice as inspiration. The wish to bear witness to those unable to speak for themselves as a consequence of poverty or illness or political circumstance, which includes gender and ethnic identity. The wish to conjoin narrative fiction with the didactic and the preacherly. Above all, the wish to move others to a course of action, the basis of political propaganda art. Here we have such works as Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, Charles Dickens' Hard Times, Stephen Crane's Maggie, A Girl of the Streets, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. I say parenthetically, Sinclair, an avid lifelong socialist, wrote nearly 100 books of which the majority are novels involving politics and social conditions in the United States. Among these are Oil, from which the much-acclaimed 2007 film There Will Be Blood was adapted and the Lanny Budd series of 11 novels, each a bestseller when it appeared, and uh, his novel Dragon's Teeth was awarded the 1943 Pulitzer Prize. Frank Norris's McTeague and the Octopus are savage critiques of rapacious American capitalism. Class warfare might be identified as the groundwork of the great novels of Theodore Dreiser, Sister Carrie in American Tragedy, and John Dos Passos, hugely influential USA. In the era of Dreiser and Dos Passos, there were few women writing of life in urban ghettos with the intelligence and emotional power of Anzia Jasurska, whose Bread Givers, Hungry Hearts, and How I Found America chronicled the lives of Jewish immigrants of New York City's Lower East Side with unflinching candor. This is a sort of socially conscious, realistic fiction that Nebelkoff scorned as vulgar, quote, 
Mediocrity thrives on ideas, says Nabokov, and of which Oscar Wilde would have said with a sneer, quote, no artist has ethical sympathies. All art is quite useless. Still, mainstream American literature with its predilection for liberal sympathies with the disenfranchised and impoverished, the great effort of 19th and 20th century novel to draw attention to social injustice and inequality remains the most attractive of literary traditions, even in our self-consciously postmodernist era. In Toni Morrison's Beloved, for instance, slave narrative sources have been appropriated and refashioned into an exquisitely wrought art that is both morally focused and aesthetically ambitious. E.L. Doctorow's great subject has been the volatile issues of class and race in America, from his early novel The Book of Daniel, which imaginatively reconstructs the lives of the atom bomb spies Ethel and Julius Rosenberg through ragtime Loon Lake, World's Fair, and The March. Doctorow's more recent novels have been shaped also by the tradition of oral histories. As Doctor has said, quote, every writer speaks for a community. No one has more explicitly acknowledged his political moral intention in writing a work of fiction than Russell Banks in his envoy to the novel Continental Drift, which concerns itself, like most of Banks's fiction, with working-class and disenfranchised Americans caught up in the malaise of a rapacious capitalist economy. This is the very end of the novel. And so ends the story of Robert Raymond Dubuse, a decent man, but in all the important ways, an ordinary man. One could say a common man. Even so, his bright particularity, having been delivered over to the obscurity of death, meant something larger than itself. Knowledge of the facts of Bob's life and death changes nothing in the world. A celebrating his life and grieving over his death, however, will. Sabotage and subversion, then, are this book's intentions. Go, my book, and destroy the world as it is. Eight. James Joyce once remarked that Ulysses was for him essentially a way of, quote, capturing the speech of my father and my father's friends. An astonishing statement when you consider the complexity of Ulysses, but one which any writer can understand. So much of literature springs from a wish to assuage homesickness, a desire to commemorate places, people, childhoods, families, and tribal rituals, ways of life, surely the primary inspiration of all, the wish in some artists clearly the necessity to capture in the quasi-permanence of art that's what is perishable in life. Though the great modernist Joyce, Proust, Yeats, Lawrence, Wolf, Faulkner, were revolutionaries in technique, their subjects were intimately bound up with their own lives and their own regions. The modernist is one who is likely to use his intimate life as material for his art, shaping the ordinary into the extraordinary. The confessional poets, Robert Lowell, John Berryman, W.D. Snodgrass, Anne Sexton, Sylvia Plath, and to a degree, Elizabeth Bishop, rendered their lives as art as if self-hypnotized. Of our contemporaries, writers as seemingly diverse as Saw Bellow, Philip Roth, and John Updike created distinguished careers out of their own lives, often recurring to familiar subjects, lovingly and tirelessly reimagining their own past as if mesmerized by the wonder of self. In his last, most obsessively self-reflective work, Ada or Ardor, a family chronicle, Vladimir Nebukov, 
evokes the intense claustrophobia of a, quote, super-imperial couple who not only inhabit the same psychic realm but boldly and audaciously are intimately related, sister and brother. Set in the whimsical counterworld called Antiterra, Nebukov's commemoration of self is fondly and literally incestuous. And again, by one of those amazing coincidences, I was just looking at some of the work, the, the work cards of Otter or Ardor in the Bird Collection. I looked at the very first paragraph, which is so famous, when he turns, sort of turns Tolstoy on his head. It's uh, happy, happy families are dissimilar. It's unhappy families are all alike. And Nebukov, as you know, wrote, he wrote in a wonderful, clear handwriting on these little note cards. It's quite amazing. No writer has been more mesmerized by the circumstances of his own exceptional life than our greatest transcendentalist poet, Henry David Thoreau, who wrote exclusively and excessively of himself as an adventurer in a circumscribed world. I have traveled much in Concord, as Hawthorne famously said. Walden is a publicly revered text which we all know, and some of us have taught many times, but it's actually Thoreau's journal in which he wrote daily from 1837 to 1861, eventually accumulating some 7,000 pages. That is the more remarkable document. As Thoreau is the most acute of observers of nature and of human nature, an analyst of the self in the Whitmanesque sense, the self that is all selves. Here is the essential Thoreau, quote, I stand in awe of my body. This matter to which I am bound had become so strange to me. I fear not spirits, ghosts of which I am one, but I fear bodies. Talk of mysteries. Think of our life in nature, daily to be shown matter, to come into contact with it. Rocks, trees, wind, tirelessly reimagining their own past. Tirelessly, excuse me, uh, think of our life in nature, daily to be shown matter, to come into contact with rocks, trees, wind on our cheeks, the solid earth, the actual world, the common sense, contact, contact. Who are we? Where are we? Nine. And this is almost the end. The early surrealists considered the world a vast forest of signs to be interpreted by the individual artist. Beneath its apparent disorder, the visual world contains messages and symbols. Like a dream? Is the world a collective dream? Not the hypnotic spell of the individual artist's childhood, family, or regional life, as in the inspiration of commemoration, but rather in its antithesis, the impersonal, the chance, the found. The surrealist photographer Man Ray wanted Parisian streets with his camera, anticipating nothing and leaving himself open to availability or chance. The most striking surrealist images were ordinary images made strange by being decontextualized. Quote, beautiful as a chance encounter of a sewing machine and an umbrella on a dissection table. When photography began to be an art that didn't depend upon careful staging in a studio or even outdoors, it was ideally suited to the caprices of our opportunity. The artist wanders into the world armed with just his camera, freed from the confines of the predictable and controlled as in the work of Cartier-Bresson, Ouija, Bruce Davidson, Larry Winogrand, the newly discovered Vivian Mayer, Diane Arbus, whose strategy, quote, was to go where I've never been, among others.
Literature is not a medium that lends itself well to the surrealist adventure of availability or chance. Even radically experimental fiction needs to be fueled by some strategy of causation, otherwise readers won't trouble to turn pages. Unlike most visual art, which can be experienced in a single gaze, fiction is a matter of subsequent and successive gazes, mimicking chronological time. There is a a minor tradition of found poems discovered in unpoetic places, like newspapers, magazines, advertisements, and graffiti, sometimes instruction manuals and brochures, language appropriated and refashioned into a recognizable poetic form. Virtually all poets have experimented with found poems at some point in their career, sometimes appropriating entire passages of prose and more often appropriating a few lines and constructing a poem around these lines, as in work by Howard Nemirov, Charles Olson, Charles Reznikoff, Annie Dillard, and some others. Found poetry is usually meant to be witty or satirical or mordantly ironic, as Hart Seeley's appropriated material titled Pieces of Intelligence, the Existential Poetry of Donald H. Rumsfeld, 2003. Here's a complete poem by Rumsfeld Seeley, The Unknown. As we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know, but there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. (laughs) It's actually quite profound. (laughs) So this is my conclusion. If inspiration is many-faceted, out of what human need or hunger does inspiration spring? That's to say, what is the motive for metaphor? It seems clear that Homo sapiens is the only species to have anything like human language, and certainly the only species to have written languages or histories. Our sense of ourselves is based upon linguistic constructs, inherited or remembered, and regarded as precious or at least valuable, Our sacred texts are presumed to have been dictated by gods, and sometimes we are fired with murderous rage if the texts are challenged or mocked, or if our creator's name is uttered in the wrong way or by the wrong lips. Perhaps literature in its broader sense incorporating centuries, millennia, as a consequence of myriad individual inspirations across myriad cultures, relates to us as that part of the human brain called the hippocampus relates to memory. The hippocampus is a small, seahorse-shaped part of the brain necessary for long-term storage of factual and experiential memory, though it's not the site of such storage. Short-term memory is transient. Long-term memory can prevail for many decades. The last thing you will be able to retrieve in your memory may very well be the first thing that came to reside there, a glimpse of your young mother's face, a confused blur of a childhood room, a lullaby, a caressing voice. If the hippocampus is injured or atrophied, there will be no further storage of memory in the brain. There will be no new memory. I have come to think that art is the formal commemoration of life in its variety. The novel, for instance, is, quote, historic in its embodiment in a specific place and time and its suggestion that there is meaning to our actions. It's virtually impossible to create a work of art without an inherent meaning, 
even if the meaning is presented as mysterious and unknowable. Without the stillness, thoughtfulness, and depth of art, and without the ceaseless moral rigors of art, we would have no shared culture, no collective memory. As if memory is destroyed in the human brain, our identities corrode, and we are no one. We become merely a shifting succession of impressions attached to no fixed source. As it is in contemporary societies, where so much concentration is focused upon social media, insatiable in its fleeting interests, the stillness and thoughtfulness of a more permanent art feels threatened. As human beings, we crave meaning, which only art can provide, but the social media provide no meaning, only the succession of fleeting impressions whose underlying principle may simply be to urge us to consume products. The motive for a metaphor, then, is a motive for survival as a species and a culture and as individuals. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I'm very happy to try to answer any questions you might have. This is the most exciting part of the evening for me. Hello. Thank Hi. you. Um, early on, uh, you quoted Plato saying that the only poem the poet can write is the one that the muse pushes them to. And I perhaps simply misheard. Perhaps I was primed for puns for the opening. But I heard the... the um, the only poem is the one that the news pushes them to write. And I, I laughed to myself, and then I thought, you're very active on Twitter, and you're very engaged <laughs> with the news, which I think have what your beautiful phrase, humankind's predilection for self-destruction. There's so much of it. And I just wonder what role the news plays in your muse. Uh, well, it's... You mean N-E-W-S? New, yeah, yep. Like CNN, BuzzFeed, uh, well, politics, prob- probably. Uh, well, I think of art. I think of some, particularly something like the novel that is really sort of the co- the consequence of a lot of strategy and thinking. I think of art as quasi permanent. Obviously, it's not going to be completely permanent. And then the other is sort of like social conversation that you might have. Maybe we used to have these conversations over the telephone, or. Maybe we wrote letters, and now the social media do that. But I don't really think that's sort of a fleeting, it's sort of like something that's always moving, whereas a novel is something much more more solid. So I'm not really sure that there's any connection between the two. People often ask me what relationship there is between my teaching and my writing, because I've been teaching for many years, and the teaching to me is a social and sort of stimulating experience that opens me to new, to new ideas and to new people and, and personalities and so forth. But I wouldn't say that it has any direct effect on the actual writing. The writing takes place in some solitary place in the soul. But I thought that the whole platonic, uh, the admonition that the poet has to be so much noise in the room. <laughs> it's all these little things. We're very social. Uh, maybe, maybe it's just in my ears. I'm hearing little, little sounds. Um, the idea that 
the poet has to be banished from the Republic. That's just so outrageous, I think, and unconscionable, but absolutely understandable, because tyrants and people who are not even tyrants want to censor. They, they send into exile, or they would put in prison. They would probably execute or torture people who disagreed with them. And we have that, we have that today even in the uh, liberal democracies, this, this yearning to censor a dis- dissident voice. And it's so clearly set forth in Plato. Thank you. Thank you. First of all, I loved your coverage of so many literary topics and writers. It was just wonderful for um, an English student. But um, I was wondering about your thoughts on, I guess for lack of a better word, on inspiration. Kind of the, um, the moments when inspiration is lacking and if that kind of makes the inspiration more... Um, I guess in your own personal experience and maybe in some of your research, like if that makes this inspiration so valuable, is, is that kind of lacking of inspiration? Well, Virginia Woolf has a wonderful part of, I think it's in her, the diary, where she talks about moments of being in contrast to ordinary times. She says, most of our life is just sort of the ordinary life that we have to live. You know, you're making dinner or you're... In, you're doing something that's mundane. But once in a while, there's this illumination of moment of being where you sort of see something or you're taken by surprise or you hear something. James Joyce spoke of the epiphany. I think that these moments of inspiration are not that common. You know, they're really not that common. How many times would, what, would Henry James have heard a story as powerful as the story that would turn into the, uh, the turn of the screw. I mean, for some people, it's like lightning striking, and it's not very frequent. But you can go out and look for it, because one of the, one of the uh, topics of inspiration is, is a surrealist idea of going out in the world to find something bizarre or unpredictable where you decide that you're just going to go out in the world. They had the camera, but one could just have a notebook. James Joyce did something of that with his notebook, and he's wandering around Dublin. Necessitated going into many pubs for, for Joyce. And he wouldn't be drinking, of course, but he'd be sort of listening to the voices. You know, the whole the music of Ulysses had a lot of the pub, the, the lilting Irish accents, and so the music of voices that are somehow not exactly discernible, but you hear the music. And so if you're feeling uninspired, probably the best thing to do is to shake yourself up and go out and, and, and look for something that will enter you with a, like a lightning bolt. Thank you. Um, when you write, how do you manage your self-criticism and reach the state of unconsciousness where you're able to write in the freest form? Well, I have to say, despite what some critics have said, I've actually never written unconscious, an unconscious thing. It would be really so exciting and wonderful to kind of wake up from a blackout. Well, it's a good, it's a good question. And I think the, the more you 
the more you outline and the more you think about what you're doing. I like to go for long walks. I like to run. And I sort of show myself a kind of cinematic uh, working out of a, of a chapter is like, like a little movie. I think the more you do of that and the more it becomes part of your memory, when you come back to work, you can write quickly. But if you're sitting at your computer and trying to write, that's the hardest of all. It's most dispiriting and paralyzing. I think it's not a good idea. However, as I said, if you go out meditating and think through what you're going to write, when you come back, you can write kind of quickly. It's not unconsciously, but it's quickly. <laughs> yes, thank you. You talk about memory being attached to the self, and as more and more of our experiences are through those screens, basically, where people are offloading their memory to the digital beings, what do you think it means to the self? Well, that's a very profound question. I, I have no idea how to answer that. I, I think it's uh, absolutely fascinating. You know, I, I read, I was reading Nebuchadnezzar recently, the, the idea of memory, people inhabiting time, and the, most, the greatest adventure for the writer is to be, as I had suggested, a kind of time traveler, where you go back in time to an earlier stage of your own life, perhaps when you were a child. You have the child's perspective, but now you have the adult perspective. So there's a kind of two, a, a double perspective there that gives you some detachment. But apart from that, I don't, I don't really know. It's, it would be a very interesting subject to, to talk about at length. Thank you. Maybe one more question? Oh, yes. Hi. Uh, I was wondering if you could share um, how often you get that lightning bolt and also um, if you could perhaps share the last time it occurred. Oh, well, that's... I should have brought in one. Of, I do have a found poem. I, I don't have it with me, actually. I did once find a poem... Uh, found poetry is a strange sort of minor tradition in poetry where you're not looking for anything but you see something that could be rendered into poetry and I, I did have that experience well I can only remember a few times in my life I do a lot of thinking and, and working with an image but I wouldn't say that it was instantaneous it's more like I get an image in my mind and then I meditate upon it and then I think about a place. To me, the setting is very important. I can't write anything without knowing where it takes place. And my, not, my long novels are all set in very, very vividly described places. There's often in upstate New York. Because to me, I have, to, I have to remake the world in the prose, and then the story takes place in there. So somehow, between that and cre creating the characters is a sort of uh, time of gestation, I think. But if you take an image from a dream and meditate on it, something will come of that because it has some emotional resonance that nobody else would understand, but you would understand. That our dreams are filled with these strange images and strange things, but mostly we let them fade away. But if you seize one of them that was really mysterious or disturbing... I just thought about it. Obviously, you could construct a story around there. You could construct a work of art around that because it has meaning to you. But most people 
can't do that or they don't want to do that. Or it's, it's why, actually... Why it's, do you think that's the case? It's an effort. Why, why do most people feel like they can't? Well, I did it? once write a whole novel constructed around a, a dream, and it was very, very difficult. Because the image that comes to you is mysterious, and you can't, you can't really figure out what it is. It's like getting a strange mineral that's glowing, you know, that sort of fell down as kryptonite or something. And you're sort of walking, and you're sort of looking at the strange thing. You know it has meaning, but you don't know what it is exactly. So you're kind of frustrated by it, but you don't want to throw it away because you know it's, it's valuable. So I wrote a whole novel called Mud Woman out of a dream that I had. It's so vivid. It's so much more real to me than most of my life. These dreams that we have sometimes are really vivid. And they stand out in a numinous way more than most of our lives, as, as Virginia Woolf said about moments of being. But I was haunted by that for years. And finally, when I constructed a whole novel around it, it takes place like on page 300. You know, it wasn't the beginning of the novel. I had to construct a whole world around it that would then present that in a coherent way. And it's really, was very, it was a great effort, you know. It's much easier, I think, to start off with a story and with characters and have an outline for a novel rather than begin with the images. But when you look at a great painter like Van Gogh, and see how he's working with images and how passionate the paint is on, on his canvases, you understand that another artist seeing the same scene would, write something, would paint something very flat and pretty or you know, attractive. But Van Gogh brings to it this intense passion, almost the passion of madness, and the paint's thick, you know, and it's very, very powerful. So obviously he was terribly haunted by some of these images, and that, I would suppose, is what makes him a great artist. And somebody else is just painting pretty little watercolors and things like that. But to take the image to some extreme... I can give you one example, though it's getting a little late, and many of you might know this. William, when William Faulkner was quite young in his late 20s, he was haunted by a dream of a, looking through a window into a room where there was a, a coffin. He imagined a little girl climbing a tree, and the little girl looks in the window. She's not supposed to look. It's like the forbidden fact of death for children. That was the haunting image of, that began the sound and the fury. And when you read the sound and the fury... The little girl, Caddy, is the one who climbs up the tree, and Quentin is on the ground, doesn't want her to go up. You know, it's one of the, the key scenes. But that was generated, the whole novel was generated by that dream. It's so touching when you learn that Faulkner's little girl, little daughter, had died a couple of years before, I think. So you can see how the personal, deeply wounded personal history went into that dream, and then the dream goes into the novel. But the novel of, of Sound of Fury, as some of you might know, was written over a period of time. It was a difficult novel, and it's a brilliant novel. It's probably one of the very great novels in the English language. But it came out of that dream. So if Faulkner hadn't had the dream, I mean, I hate to say it, but maybe if his, his daughter hadn't died, you know, he may not, may not have written that novel. 
the other day I was teaching Tim O'Brien's this, The Things They Carried, you know, that great story. It's a novel and it's a short story. I was teaching at Princeton, and all the students are so admiring of it. That's a great short story set in the Vietnam, during the Vietnam War. And I said to the students, would you like to have written that story? And they said, yes, yes, they all did. And I said, would you like to have lived the, the experience that would allow you to write the story? And they all were completely, no, nope, they didn't want to do that. And you can't blame them. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. SoundCloud.